Our scripture reading this evening takes us on a road trip. It takes us on a road trip from, from Jerusalem and to Emmaus and back to Jerusalem. It's a distance of seven miles each way, Luke tells us, and that's a nice detail to know. But the distance and, and the, the, the traveling, it's far more than a, a geographical one and far more than the distance of miles, that the journey that we consider today, it's a journey with disciples who move from the despair of we had hoped to he's risen indeed. Think about that. What, a, what an incredibly human story. We had hoped. Isn't that so much of the, of the human experience? Isn't that so much of our, of our lives? And we were in the, the season of Easter, the season we celebrate Jesus' victory over, over sin and death, and we declare with hallelujahs that he's risen, and he is, and we feast, and we should. And it's wonderful to declare, and it's true. And yet if we're honest, there's times in the week that the joy of resurrection still seems a long way off. And for many of us, perhaps this week, it's been marked less by joy and more by disappointment and and disillusionment. I want to say the gospel today comes as an incredible encouragement to us. I hope it is for you. It has been for me as I reflected. Think of the setting. Here is a couple of disciples, and they've, they've really given up everything to follow Jesus, this man that they had hoped and thought was going to be the Messiah. They're in, in a setting where they're an oppressed minority under a, a, a violent military regime, and there's this expectation of salvation. And so they give up everything, and they follow Jesus, and they come to, to Jerusalem, and their expectation is that there's going to be this great overthrow, this uprising military, and that the oppressors are going to be thrown out, and the kingdom is going to become restored to Israel. And they, having left, gather with this group of disciples of Jesus in Jerusalem, and they watch as their own leaders hand Jesus over in an unjust trial and he's crucified, he's mocked, and he's shamed publicly on a cross, defeated. And as well, they might be contemplating their own complicity in their their betrayal of Jesus. They're running away and feeling the shame of that. And and faced with the trauma of that event, the reality of this defeat and, and this seeming loss, now they're witnessing the Dissolution, I mean, the, the dissolution, the, the coming apart of this group, this community that had followed Jesus. And the two of them, they leave Jerusalem and they head home. I wonder, could you imagine how distant God probably seemed at that time? I mean, has God ever felt more f- far away from saving? Maybe you can relate to that. Maybe you have times like that where God seems distant and we're disappointed and disillusioned. And yet Luke tells us that Jesus draws near. 
That might be the only thing you need to hear tonight, potentially. And our disillusionment and our disappointment and our lack of hope, wherever we are on that journey, that Jesus draws near. And he draws near and he asks a question. He says, tell me about the conversation that you're having. It's not like he didn't know, is it? I mean, you know, there's this irony there that Luke says, and the guy says, well, are you the only person around that doesn't know what's going on? You know, we're insiders with Luke, aren't we? Because we know what's been going, we've been reading, and we know he's the only person there that day that actually knew what was going on. He doesn't triumphantly tell them that. He just says, what things? Because he wants to create a space for them to give voice to their conversation, to their struggles, to their disappointments, to their disillusionment. He says, tell me about it. And he gives them space to share. Have you thought about what an encouragement that is in our times of disappointment and disillusionment that Jesus draws near and he says, tell me about it. I want you to tell me honestly, like the psalmists, it's not that I don't know, but give voice to your struggles and I'll listen and give you space to do it. And they do. What would that do for our prayer life just to know that truth? I think about it as well. I think about what a, what a model for pastoral ministry. There's so much of what we see in the church. It's an attractional model. Gather them. And there's a part where come and see. It's true. And yet, this is Jesus drawing near to someone. Drawing near to people in their struggles. And asking them, tell me about your conversations. And giving them space. What a great model for our neighborhood groups. For our conversations over dinner time for our gatherings together, ministering to people. Think about in our, in our homes and our, whatever our community looks like together. To be there and to ask, tell me about the conversations that you've been having. For your work colleagues, what are their hopes and their desires, their disappointments? What a model for our witness. I mean, it's Easter, right? And it's, yes, we're here to declare, Jesus is risen. There is hope. Sin and death have been defeated. We want to declare that, but what a great model to get that out, just drawing near. Tell me about your conversation. Hearing the stories and giving them space is a starting point for our witness. In the midst of the disciples' disappointment and disillusionment, Jesus draws near. And then Cleopas, well, he, he answers. And he gives us well, you know, the gospel according to Cleopas. It's a great, great summary statement of the gospel. If you track along with me in um, read, uh, verse 19. And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed in word before God and all the people. And how a chief priest and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and beside all this, it's now the third day since these things have happened. Moreover, some women of our company, they amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they didn't find his body, they came back saying they'd seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were there I went with us, and they went to the tomb and, and found it just as the woman had said, but him they didn't see. It's a great summary of the facts, isn't it? 
It's the great gospel, and yet his eyes are closed. He doesn't understand. This does not look like good news for Cleopas. And one of the things is, we consider it, he doesn't see it good news because he's got a culturally formed view of what salvation was going to be. Cultural expectations of influenced what salvation would look like. It would look like a mighty warrior uh, rising up and a violent military overthrow of the Romans. That was what would bring salvation. And it didn't look like that, so we can't see that as good news. I think that that's, that's really us too, isn't it? We're offered so many cultural forms of, of salvation, things that we should interpret as what the abundant life would look like, what to put, place our hopes in, and sometimes we struggle to see because our view is culturally informed. But Jesus, having listened and heard, he's about to start this work of revealing himself to them as the risen Savior. It's a great thought, isn't it? You thought this, this Jesus who's been ridiculed and shamed and mocked and, and he's been tortured, he's risen from the dead, he's conquered sin and death, and he's about to make himself known to his disciples. And I'm kind of thinking, right, sure, he's going to say, go and get some water, bring it back to me, I'm going to change it into wine, and we're going to have a party and celebration. The Jesus party bus is going that way first to Caiaphas, and then around to Herod and Pilate, get on the train, here we go. And he doesn't. Jesus says, let's have a Bible study. It's not what we expect, is it? We sometimes expect that the profound and the flashy and the experiential and something, and Jesus says, let's go through the scriptures. Wasn't it necessary that the Messiah would have to suffer, be marked and crucified and, and, and die? And he interprets to them all the scripture and all the scriptures the things concerning himself. I was in a, a cafe Sunday morning um, just grabbing a shot of coffee before coming into to, to service last week. And it's up at the front and there, the barista looked and he said, so have you got plans for the day? <laughs> Actually, yes, I do. And I said, I'm, I'm a pastor and we're going to head in, lead, um, and be with our community in worship. And he said, oh, cool. So I, I studied theology once. He said, man, I just found it. There was just so many books, so much reading. And then his barista friend over to the side looks and goes, yeah, man, I've seen the Bible. That's a whole lot of words, man. <laughs> and Nathan said, yes, it is. <laughs> and it's true. And yet Jesus looks. And he opens the scriptures the whole way through and he interprets to them all the scriptures showing the things concerning himself. All these scriptures pointing to him. Words made flesh. God himself, this word of life in amongst them. I found a picture this week and if um, we can click that up. Next slide for whoever's on there. There's a wonderful picture. I mean, there's this Etch this into your mind, remember it, this is it. This is a, a, a picture of Luther um, in the pulpit. And you'll notice there, he has his left hand firmly established on the scriptures. 
that in his right hand, he's pointing to Christ crucified. He's not worried about the crowd. He's worried about what does the scriptures say and pointing and saying, look, focus your attention. There he is, the word made flesh, Christ crucified. And look at, and look at the people's faces. Praise the Lord. They're not worried about the preacher. There's something far better to look at than that. And the attention is because of the word pointing and focused at the Savior. The word made flesh, the, the crucified Savior. If you take a look, you might see in the, in the middle of that, of that group of people off to the left, there's a, there's a young woman in there, just to the right-hand side. She's the one, she's not looking at Jesus, but she's looking kind of our way. And it's almost a look that it's saying, and this is for you too, drawing us in that we might also turn our eyes to see the Word made flesh, the one whom the Scriptures point to. It's interesting when in, Luke, in Luke's Gospel, as we think back about that, this has been the theme, isn't it? Jesus starts his ministry and he, he reads the Scripture and says, today this is fulfilled in your midst. He says a couple of times that, that, that um, he would be betrayed into the hands of men, mocked and spat upon, flogged and killed, as the prophets had written about the Son of Man. It's in chapter 9 and, and chapter 18. He says it's necessary here, well, 19 times in Luke's gospel, we hear this coming through again. It's necessary, it's necessary, it's necessary. And Jesus living that out. Think about the, the parable that um, Luke's gospel records of, of Lazarus, and the rich man down in Hades, and the rich man is just pleading and saying, Moses, look, would you, you need to send Lazarus back from the grave and go to my brothers and have him tell them about this. And he's told, if they don't believe the, the prophets and the, and the scriptures, they'll never believe even if I send someone back from the dead. Because the scriptures are all saying the same thing. The scriptures are trustworthy and can be relied upon. In Luke 24, it's a repetition of the same idea. We're going to go a big picture. Remember, like Luke 15, we're more familiar with is the, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost sons. In Luke 24, there's three stories the same. The first one's the resurrection appearance to the woman. He says, Remember the words I told you. And they remember and think they were trustworthy. And here he's saying, look at the, at the law and the prophets. Did they not say it was necessary? And we see that it's true. And the next story after, he combines it and he says, remember my words and look at the scriptures. And we get in this testimony of their faith, their trustworthiness, that God has done what he said he would do and what he has accomplished. And think about that. This was written for Theophilus a man who potentially was um, a catechumen preparing for baptism. And Luke says at the start of his gospel, he said, I'm writing these things that you may be confident of what you've been taught. Again, affirming. It's an encouragement. We're not going to have a Thomas experience necessarily. What we're going to have is the testimony of witnesses and the testimony of the Scriptures. And the good news for Theophilus is the same good news for us. It's trustworthy. We can take it, it's pointing 
to the crucified and risen Savior. You want to sometimes, do we know that Scripture's enough? Do we want experience of something more profound? Have we, have we lost our confidence in it? But when we think about it, when we come, just like Jesus did for these two disciples, the disappointment because their, their cultural view of salvation was, was different, and, and through this, their story is enveloped into this true greatest story. Their disappointments and hopes are brought into this great story of salvation, of restoration, of hope and redemption and restored in this hopeful way. It's the great story of God's faithfulness, His covenant love and great acts of redemption. It repairs our broken worldviews and our false salvation narratives and points to the crucified and risen Savior. As we die with Him, so surely we'll rise with Him. I was once, prior to um, starting seminary, I was with a group of, of church leaders and we're talking about, about preaching and a situation, there was a couple of them spoke and they just said, no, we just don't know what to preach anymore. Like we've just, anytime we go to open the Bible, we just see people's eyes just glaze over. And we said, we just don't know what to do. I was so angry. Like, are you kidding me? It's like, what are you going to preach when you open some book and three, three steps to a better life or something? What do you want from me? I don't have any more than this. I can't give you anything. This is the word of God that brings life. I personally don't have that. I can only point to the one. We've got to have confidence of that. I don't say that to, to belittle those people. There's a part of me just desperately in my anger. I wanted to go and hug them as well. Deeply hug them in, in their disillusionment. Say, come on, this is enough. It's the word of life. It brings life. And I know that from personal experience because in my situation that was at the absolute end of hopelessness, I knew the despair and the hopelessness and the disillusionment and someone came alongside me, they drew near and they listened to my story and they gave me a chance to give voice. And then they sat down and they opened the word with me and they showed this greatest story into which my life had broken as fit and had redemption in Christ. And it was enough. And it is still enough. Do we know that? Words enough, and we can go to it. It's great news for Theophilus, and it's great news for us. And Jesus opens the word. It's why he didn't need a miracle. He had something more. They still don't have their eyes opened. And it's getting late, and they're walking, and Jesus is still a stranger to them at this point. And yet, while Jesus was still a stranger to them, they invite him home. They invite him into their house. I wonder if there's a picture in that of maybe you exploring and discovering who this Jesus is. Maybe he's still a stranger to you. Maybe at the start there'll be this surprise of inviting him in as he draws near to you and sitting at the table, allowing someone to, to read through the scriptures with you while he's a stranger. And maybe he'll, you'll find out that he's actually the host of the meal and he's the one that's been inviting you to dine with him the whole time. They invite him in. And at that table, Jesus breaks the bread with them, blesses it, and they eat together. 
It's funny, when you look at the, this, this passage, there's the, that the references and used for the, for the breaking of the bread, it's, my mind initially went you know, straight away to the Lord's table at the Last Supper. And it's not the language that's used. It's, it's really the, um, the language of the feeding of the 5,000, which is told about the time when the identity of Jesus is being questioned and unpacked. It's also, Luke makes it clear, this, at the time of the night, it's the time of the evening sacrifice the time where the sacrifice was made for the covering over of sins, which is where Luke started the gospel with Zechariah in the temple, burning the incense at the sacrifice for the covering of sins. And it's the same time that Jesus died on the cross, the true Paschal Lamb that took away the sins of the world. And it's at this time with those things no doubt from having their eyes open to the, from the taught from the scriptures and seeing this and recognizing their eyes are opened that the risen Savior beside them is the crucified guy and the one that was crucified is the risen Savior. Sin and death have been defeated. New life. New creation. And, and, and think about this. Think about Genesis, the, the original creation, the first meal in scripture. Their eyes are opened to their sin and to their shame and to the reality of death. And here in the first meal of the new creation, post-resurrection, their eyes are opened to the forgiveness of sins, to the defeat of sin and death. What incredible joy from these couple that were walking, we had hoped to now they're no longer calling Jesus a prophet, but they declare him Lord, the one who rules over creation, who's defeated the enemy of sin and death. They go back in joy. Great news for Theophilus, great news for you, and great news for me. They go on and... I think about this. I mean, they, they actually head back, even though it would have been late and dangerous, and they go back to Jerusalem. The group that was dissolving hopelessness is now going back together, regathering, testifying to this great news, encouraging each other in this great news. And look what we read in Acts. They commit themselves to prayer, to rejoicing, to, to the breaking of bread. And isn't that what we do here? Look, I know sometimes we, we almost take it for granted what it is that we do on a Sunday. Do we not? We come in and, I don't know, do we, do we ever want to, do we need more than this? Because it's just, we don't. We enter in and as we enter in, we enter in and there's the, the baptismal there. And we remind ourselves that as we share with Christ's death, so we'll share in his resurrection. We've entered through the... Um, through the, through the seas and the waters, the things that we did in the, in the Easter Vigil, and we enter into that. And we, our story of disillusionment and hopelessness, we're entering into this greater story of resurrection hope. And we come forward every week together, and we read from the prophets and the law and the Psalms and the Scriptures, and we point to the crucified Savior, the Lamb of God that came to take away the sin of the world, defeat sin and death. 
and we share our thoughts, we confess our sins and our failings, the, the things that we've done, and we are reminded of God's forgiveness of us. And the point that we're coming, remember that Christ becomes the host at his table. He invites us to come, and just as he's been present in the reading of his word that points to him, remember that he's present at his table as well. Every week we come from a, a journey of disappointment and disillusionment, and we come and we're reminded that Jesus is Lord. He is risen and he is reigning and there's hope. What a wonderful journey. You're joining in it. Would you miss it? Where would you rather be apart from with God's people giving testimony to this each week? Don't you want to be where the risen Savior is with his word and with his sacrament? With each other, around a table, breaking bread together and then going out gathering with others and going in and just as Jesus is the word made flesh, the embodiment of this word, we go out as that embodied people filled with the spirit to declare it, drawing near to other people, asking them, tell me about your conversations, listening, and then inviting them into this greater story, this story of hope. It's, it's a joy to be with you all. I mean that. I love that on Sundays. I love that we get together. I love that we gather our neighborhood groups and our homes. Don't, let's not give up meeting together. Someone do, let's encourage, gather others. And let's do not lose our hope and our trust in the scriptures and the testimony they point to the one who can give us life and hope and resurrection. I pray that for you.